Well, hello, friends. My name is J.B. Hickson with Not By Works Ministries. Thanks for joining us. On today's program, I'd like to talk about the difference between the rapture and the second coming. What is the difference between the rapture and the second coming? Unfortunately, there's quite a bit of uh, confusion, I think, out there about this issue. Uh, you know, the subject of Bible prophecy is a pretty large tent and, and, and encompasses a lot of people who come from different perspectives on how to handle God's Word. And while I appreciate Anyone who has a passion for the end times and talking about the return of the Lord, it's very important that we understand the Bible in its literal, grammatical, historical context and, and resist the temptation to allegorize the text. And, and, and sometimes it's not even so much giving into a temptation to allegorize, it's just a common mistake of just not handling the Word of God correctly. You know, Paul tells us we need to cut straight. We need to rightly divide the Word of God. And that's what we want to do this morning as we talk about the difference between the rapture and the second coming. And the reason I decided to talk about this is I was having a great conversation last week with some dear friends as we had a meal together and talked about various subjects related to the end times. And uh, it kind of came up again that a lot of teachers out there confuse the rapture and the second coming. In fact, uh, I'm going to go over several uh, confusions, if you will, today that all relate to this issue of the rapture and the second coming. And then I'd like to look at some key rapture passages, and then I'd like to close out by just uh, summarizing the clear biblical uh, contrasts between the rapture and the second coming. And uh, so I hope this will be somewhat edifying. Again, it might be review for a lot of you, but I think uh, as Not By Works is picking up new listeners all the time and we are hitting on a variety of different audiences through the different outlets that have picked us up, uh, I, I want to ma make sure that we address this issue with clarity. So to begin with, you can probably tell by the, the question, what is the difference between the rapture and the second coming, that they're not the same thing. There is, in fact, a difference. Uh, and so what I'd like to start with, the first confusion that I think leads people to be confused about the rapture, is they're confused about the distinction between God's program for Israel and God's program for the church. So we believe the Bible teaches God has a plan for Israel and he has a separate plan for the church. Now, ultimately, they will all coalesce together in the long-awaited Messianic kingdom someday. But if you read the Bible progressively, starting with Genesis, going all the way through to Revelation, and you have a sensitivity to progressive revelation, you'll, you have no choice but to conclude that the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament will be fulfilled for Israel. And the church is a new work of God that was... Uh, established and, and revealed in the New Testament and has nothing to do uh, with Israel. So um, replacement theology uh, is pretty common out there, uh, and, and that teaches that uh, the church has replaced Israel. The church is the fulfillment, the culmination of God's plan for Israel, so that all of the promises made to Israel are being fulfilled today in the church. Well, the only way you can arrive at that erroneous conclusion is to start with the New Testament and read it back into the Old Testament. And the problem with this, and it should seem self-evident, is that the Bible, of course, was written 
over a period of 1,500 years uh, by 40 different human authors in three different languages. And over those 1,500 years, God, the creator of the universe, uh, unveiled himself through the written word to mankind, giving us progressively, meaning over time, little by little, what he wanted us to know about him. But it was revealed through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to human authors within a historical context and setting. And if you need the New Testament in order to correctly interpret and understand the meaning of the Old Testament, then that means what God revealed in its time, say through Moses or David uh, in the Old Testament, was impossible to understand because they didn't have the New Testament for another thousand years uh, so or for 1,500 years in the case of, of Moses. So, of course, you have to uh, understand the doctrine of original intent and original meaning. When the words hit, you know, when the quill hit the sheepskin, the words on the page meant something to the original recipients, which was the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. The Old Testament began to be written, by the way, in the year 1446 during the wilderness wanderings as Moses was leading the children of Israel out of captivity in Egypt. And for the next 40 years, Moses penned the words of the first five books of the Old Testament called the Pentateuch or the books of Moses. And they were given to the nation of Israel as God began to explain everything from the beginning. That's what Genesis means. So, But those words have to be understood in their context. Otherwise, it would just be gibberish or nonsense to the original recipients. And those are fundamental rules of language of the doctrine of authorial intent and original meaning. And so what happens with replacement theology is the uh, new, they, they take the New Testament, which came along hundreds upon hundreds of years later, and they start there, and then they say, oh, this reference in the Old Testament to a kingdom must mean spiritual kingdom, or this reference to a throne must mean our hearts, or this reference to Christ reigning on the earth must mean he's reigning within the church today, not physically on a throne or in a temple and so forth. So that's a real fundamental issue, and that's one of the biggest confusions that leads to a confusion between the rapture and the second coming is a confusion between God's program for Israel and God's program for the church. And secondly, as I mentioned, it's also based upon a confusion about how to interpret Scripture in general. Now, we just recently finished a series on how to read and understand the Bible. It's available uh, for free in our podcast archives uh, or in video form. Uh, you can just go to notbyworks.org and watch that. But as I just uh, mentioned a moment ago, the literal grammatical historical approach to Scripture is the only proper way to really understand uh, God's, uh, God's Word or really any language. Uh, you cannot begin in your own mind with these fanciful ideas and bring them to the text and then sort of twist the text to mean what you really want it to mean or uh, even sometimes sincerely uh, want it to mean. Uh, so uh, there's confusion over God's program for Israel and the church. God's, there's confusion over the actual Bible study method. How do you handle the Word of God? But another confusion that exists is the confusion over the nature of the church, and this, of course, leads right into a misunderstanding of uh, the rapture, uh, So, and a confusion between the rapture and the second coming. Well, what do we mean by the nature of the church? Well, let's look at a couple of key passages uh, that make this clear. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul, speaking to the church, uh, you know, this was written in the 50s AD, and he's uh, talking about 
how flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. In the context, he's been talking about the resurrection and the future kingdom of God. And he's just saying, look, guys, you need to understand this flesh and blood body that you're in, it's not going to be able to inherit the kingdom because the kingdom of God is eternal. And then he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Now, what is a mystery? It's the Greek word mysterion, and of course, in English, we think of mystery, and we think of uh, some sort of puzzle or you know some Agatha Christie uh, screenplay or something where you're trying to solve some you know difficult problem. That's not what the term mysterion in Greek means at all. It just means new revelation, uh, something that was previously undisclosed. It was previously hidden in the mind of God. And he is now revealing it and unveiling it. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is disclosing new information. What is that new information? He says, we shall not all sleep. Sleep is a euphemism for death. So we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. Changed in order to inherit the kingdom. We've got to put on a glorified body. But notice what he says next. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye... At the last trump, or at the last trumpet is the New King James. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible. In other words, they will receive their resurrected physical body. And then we shall be changed. So 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 52, parallel perfectly what Paul had said earlier when he wrote his first letter uh, to the Thessalonians. Listen carefully. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, that is, those who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and the grammatical syntax there is, and we do, in other words, since we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so, we believe God will bring with him those who have died in Jesus, those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep, who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Where have we heard that before? 1 Corinthians 15. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So what Paul is describing here is the same thing in 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians 15. And there are other key passages we can uh, talk about as well. But I want you to understand that the whole discussion is couched in terms of a mystery. That means it was not revealed in the Old Testament. You're not going to find it in the Hebrew Old Testament because the church didn't exist in the Hebrew Old Testament. And indeed, the church is also termed a mystery. If you go to Ephesians chapter 3, one of Paul's prison epistles, he said, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, referring here to the church age, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, which he goes on to say, in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, but is now being revealed by the Holy Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, namely me, is what he's saying. Uh, Paul, not me, J.B., but me, uh, Paul. And so the church is a mystery that was revealed in the New Testament. The rapture, 
of the church is a mystery that was revealed in the Old Testament. And one of the reasons people are confused about the, the relationship between the rapture and the second coming is because they are confused about the very nature of the church. The church is a unique body of believers made up of Jews and Gentiles in one body. Uh, we're not, no longer under the law. We don't approach God through the same Levitical uh, system that the Old Testament believers did. And I encourage you, by the way, to listen to my message from Sunday at Plum Creek Chapel in Sedalia. It was called His Great Sacrifice. And I looked at Hebrews chapter 10 and made several distinctions between uh, the ultimate sacrifice of Christ and the Old Testament system. And we're living in this new uh, system, the church age. We have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, something Old Testament believers did not have. We are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, something no other believer in any other age ever experienced. And so if you, if you don't understand the nature of the church, then of course you will be confused about the relationship between the rapture and the second coming. So again, these are just some sort of foundational issues where I find people are confused that lead to a confusion between the rapture and the second coming. They're confused about the distinction between God's program for Israel and God's program for the church. They're confused in their um, methodology of how to study the Bible, you know, kind of ignoring the literal grammatical historical context. They're confused about the nature of the church itself. Another confusion that I think causes people to misunderstand the distinction between the rapture and the second coming is a confusion over the difference between tribulation and the tribulation. You know, um, the Old Testament repeatedly refers to a future, special, concentrated, limited in time, period of time, that will constitute the wrath of God being poured out upon the earth. Uh, this is clearly prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, as God gives the nation of Israel, it's for Israel, a 490-year plan. Uh, that plan began with the decree of Artaxerxes to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and it will not end in its entirety until Christ comes back to establish the kingdom, a 490-year plan. Now, if you read the text in Daniel 9, 24 to 27, you find that the first 483 years uh, were completed with the first advent of Christ, when Christ uh, came into Jerusalem to, on the day of, uh, of the Passover to ultimately offer himself. Uh, and of course, they, instead of king, crowning him king, they crowned him with thorns. Uh, but in Daniel's prophecy, he uses the Hebrew term Shabuah, which is often translated weak, uh, like W-E-E-K, a week, or sevens in some modern translation, translations. And Daniel says there's going to be 70 Shabuas, or weeks. And if you look up the word Shabuah, you find that it means a seven-year period. In some context, it can mean a seven-day period, but that's pretty clear in the context, whether he's talking about a day or a year. But often it refers to a seven-year period. Uh, for example, when uh, Jacob... Um, had to work for seven years uh, to get uh, uh, first Leah and then seven more years 
For Rachel, the term used in the book of Genesis, there is a Shabuah. He had to work for a Shabuah, a seven-year period. So Daniel says there are going to be 70 Shabuahs, or 77-year periods, which is 490 years. The first 69 Shabuahs, or 483 years, uh, were completed at the first advent of Christ. But what about that final Shabuah, that final week of Daniel, that final seven-year period? Well, it will not commence until the Antichrist signs the peace treaty with Israel in Daniel 9, according to Daniel 9.27. So that period of seven years is referred to in Scripture as the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's also referred to as the great day of the Lord's wrath. It's referred to as the overflowing scourge. It's referred to, again, as Daniel's 70th week, that final seven-year period. It's also referred to as the great tribulation or the tribulation. And uh, so it's a seven-year period that has to do with God's prophecy and the outpouring of his wrath. When you get to the book of Revelation, chapters 6 to 18 are all about that future seven-year period. We know this because Jesus uh, teaching in the Olivet Discourse, and I talked about that last week, by the way, on our Tuesday podcast, uh, in a podcast entitled The Days of Noah. If you've not listened to that yet, I encourage you to go back and Listen to that as I outlined and explained the Olivet Discourse in its entirety. Uh, but uh, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus you know, explains what's going to be going on during that seven-year period just prior to his return to establish the kingdom. And it, it parallels perfectly with Revelation 6. So in Revelation, you have the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments, all judgments of God's wrath being poured out on the earth. It is quite clear from Revelation 6 that the, the seal judgments are, are already encompassing the wrath of God because by the time you get to the end of chapter 6, people are crying out on earth, hide me from the wrath. Well, why would they be hiding from something that didn't exist? So the wrath begins with the first seal judgment of the tribulation, that final seven-year period, and, and the entire seven years is God's wrath. So a lot of times, you know, people, and it drives me crazy when I hear this, they say, oh, you you folks that believe in the rapture, that, that silly doctrine of the rapture, you think that the church is going to be, you know, not going to have to suffer, and we're going to be, you know, rescued from the earth before things get really bad. Well, the fact of the matter is, no orthodox teacher of the rapture uh, and God's, you know, you know, God's word teaches the rapture, but nobody that uh, believes in the rapture and teaches it, you know, formally and professionally believes that. You know, I've been privileged to be a part of some of the top, you know, dispensational organizations, gone, gone to dispensational schools, taught it, you know, for many years in academia at the highest levels. Uh, I, you know, I've worked with some of the greatest minds of our day, Tommy Ice, uh, Tim LaHaye before he passed away, John Walver, J. Dwight Pentecost, Mike Stallard, uh, some of the leading dispensational scholars of our day, and none of them have ever taught that the rapture rescues Christians before things get bad. And so that belief is a red herring. It's, it's, a, it's really a straw man. It, no one believes that, and certainly the Bible doesn't teach that. But what the Bible teaches is that the church will be rescued before that 70th week of Daniel, prior to the final seven years of God's wrath. This is you know, because the Bible teaches we are not appointed to wrath. We are children of God, not children of wrath. Once you become born again, you are uh, you know, saved by grace through faith, and you become part of the family of God, not under the, the wrath of God. This is what Jesus was teaching in John 3. And at the end of John, chapter 
3, the very last verse, in fact, uh, the Apostle John says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall never see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So unbelievers are the ones that will face the wrath of God, not the church. In 1 Thessalonians you know, 1.10, Paul says this explicitly, We are to wait for his Son from heaven who raised whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And then in 1 Thess 5.9, he says, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the purpose of the rapture is to rescue us from the tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel, the wrath of God, not to rescue us before, quote, things get too bad. The fact of the matter is people are confused about tribulation and the tribulation. We are told plainly by Jesus, in this world you will have tribulation. We're going to have persecution. Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So absolutely, we're going to face difficulties, hardship, persecution, tribulation, but we will never have to face the tribulation in that final seven-year period when the cosmic struggle between Satan and his Luciferian co-conspirators on earth and his demons uh, doing battle with God takes place. Uh, we won't be here. We'll be uh, in heaven with our Lord. And in fact, we return with him at the end of the tribulation uh, to establish the kingdom on earth. And so uh, these are all confusions that I think lead to a misunderstanding about the rapture. And so just to summarize the confusions, then I will explain the difference and answer my question, what is the difference between the rapture and the second coming? People are confused about the relationship between Israel and the church. They're confused about how to study the Bible, and they ignore a literal, grammatical, historical approach to Scripture. They're confused about the very nature of the church itself, that it's a mystery, some new work of God that is serving its purpose on earth today, but it has nothing to do with God's program for the Israel. God has not abandoned Israel or forsaken Israel entirely. He has simply set them aside until Christ the Deliverer comes back to inaugurate the kingdom. And uh, Paul describes that in Romans 9 through 11. But people are confused about the tribulation and tribulation in general and, and the difference between the two. So with that sort of backdrop, let's uh, summarize some of the distinctions between the rapture and the second coming because people confuse the various scriptures in the Bible that relate to the return of Christ and they merge them all together as if they're all talking about the same event, but they're clearly not. So let me close out today's discussion by just taking a look at two key passages, one uh, that talks about the rapture and the other that talks about the second coming. So we're going to be contrasting 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18, and Revelation 19, uh, verses 11 to 21. So, by the way, the word rapture, this is another straw man that people create. They say, oh, the word rapture is not found in the Bible. Well, it most certainly is. It's in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Of course, the Bible wasn't written in English, uh, and the Bible wasn't written in Latin either. It was written originally, the New Testament, in Greek. But when the Greek Bible was translated by Jerome into uh, Latin in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. He translated the word harpazo, which is the Greek word 
for rescue for for snatching away snatching us off the earth harpazo he translated that rapire or rapture in latin and so and then uh, in the English, when we translate the Bible in English many years later, in our English Bibles, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 says, we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So the word rapture absolutely is used in Scripture. Uh, it's a legitimate English translation, and, uh, and it's certainly the doctrine of the rapture uh, is taught in Scripture. The doctrine of the rapture plainly stated is just that the Lord will rescue the church, his bride, uh, from the earth prior to, to the outpouring of God's wrath during the seven-year tribulation period. So what are some contrasts? Well, if you look at 1 Thessalonians 4 and Revelation 19, and you just let the Bible speak plainly, here are some contrasts that should jump off the page at you. At the rapture, Christ comes in the air. At the second coming, Christ comes all the way to the earth. So now, of course, how do people that deny the doctrine of the rapture explain that? Well, they say, oh, Christ comes to the air, pauses, like pulls off the interstate into a rest area, raptures the church up to meet him, and then loads up again and gets back on the interstate and comes all the way to the earth. Well, why would he do that? I mean, that's not, of course, there are a thousand reasons why that's not what's what's going on there. But even if you, you know, all the other reasons that I've talked about today about the distinction between uh, the church and Israel weren't true, why would the Bible describe God's return to the earth to establish his kingdom in those terms? You know, like a like two steps. We're going to get close. We're going to come almost all the way to the earth, and then we're going to stop for a while. And I'm going to have you come up here and gather with me. Maybe it's like a team meeting or something. I don't know. And then we'll come all the way to the earth. And I, and I don't mean to sound snide, because I know our brothers and sisters that... Uh, don't see a distinction between the rapture and the second coming. Uh, you know, they mean, well, they love the Lord, they, they love his word, but I mean, seriously, let's just let the text speak for itself. So at the rapture, Christ comes in the air. At the second coming, he comes all the way to the earth on the Mount of Olives and establishes his kingdom. At the rapture, only the saved are in view, only believers. Every passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thess 4, 2 Thess 2, John 14, uh, only the saved are in view. But in, at the second coming... In Revelation 19, the saved and the unsaved are in view. You know, he's going to come with a sword proceeding out of his mouth to judge unbelievers. As he describes the second coming in the Olivet Discourse, like we talked about last Tuesday, he describes separating the sheep from the goats. That's believers and unbelievers. So at the second coming, uh, you have, you know, both believers and unbelievers involved. At the rapture, it's only believers. No, none of the rapture passages ever speak about unbelievers. Here's an interesting contrast. At the rapture, according to 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, the dead are raised to life. Now, what does that mean, by the way? Well, remember, uh, we are just simply living in our temporary tents or our bodies. The real me, the real you, is the unseen, immaterial part of me, my soul. And the soul is eternally conscious. The soul of uh, dead people who are believers is in heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 8. Um, and the soul of dead people that are not believers is in uh, hell. Uh, if you look at Luke 16 and many other passages, uh, they're in torment. So, uh, But in, as we said, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. You have to have a body to be in the eternal kingdom. So as we read about in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thess 4, there's going to be a resurrection of the physical bodies of believers. It will be glorified. 
This mortal will turn into immortality. This corruptible will turn into incorruption. And it'll be reunited with our soul. And that's the body we will have for all of eternity. So that's what we mean when we say the dead are raised to life. It's not like when you die, you go into this you know, prolonged sense of coma or sleep, and then you get you know, awakened at the rapture. No, no, you're always awake. You, you go immediately to be in the presence of the Lord at death, if you're a believer. Uh, but your body will be reconstituted from wherever it is. If it's been lost at sea, if it's been burned up in, a, in an incinerator, if it was buried and embalmed, it doesn't matter. Those physical atoms that constitute our physical bodies will be reconstituted. Uh, so at the rapture, the dead are raised to life, but it's just the opposite at the second coming. It's the living that are sent to death. You know, depart from me into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels, Jesus will say at his second coming. At the rapture, believers, as we said, go from earth to heaven. But at the second coming, believers of the church age come from heaven to earth. We are riding with him on white horses. Totally different. At the rapture, we know it is immediately followed or at least not necessarily immediately because there's some unspecified gap of time between the rapture and the second coming, but it's followed by, in God's prophetic plan, the tribulation, the great day of the Lord's wrath, that 70th week of Daniel, the seven-year period. Um, but the second coming is followed contextually by the millennium, the 1,000-year the, the reign of Christ on this old earth. I mean, that's a, that's a real problem, you know, for uh, folks that, try to allegorize the book of Revelation. And that is that Revelation chapter 20, last time I checked, comes after chapter 19. So we're not living in the kingdom today. The kingdom won't come until after Christ returns. He comes back in 19. The kingdom is inaugurated in 20. Uh, so, of course, they have an answer for that too. They twist around the book of Revelation and make it into this weird recapitulation every three chapters or so is restating the same thing. But no, nobody would pick up the book of Revelation normally and understand it in that way. That's an example of twisting the text to, to meet your view. Uh, the rapture uh, is imminent. That means it could happen at any moment. We've taught on this extensively. Uh, I've got a couple of uh, videos that you can purchase that uh, talk about the imminency of the rapture. One is called The Doctrine of Imminency. One is called One Minute Before the Rapture. Um, and uh, those are available at notbyworks.org on our store. But the doctrine of eminence is a biblical doctrine. It means the rapture could happen at any moment. Well, that's obviously not true of the second coming. This is another contrast. The second coming is preceded by numerous prophetic events. I mean, think of all that has to happen before the second coming. According to Scripture, you've got to have the unveiling of the Antichrist, the signing of the peace treaty, the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments, the two witnesses of Revelation, the abomination of desolation at the midpoint of the, of, uh, the tribulation. You've got the 144,000 witnesses have to be sent out to share the gospel throughout the ends of the earth during the tribulation. You've got the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, and you've got, you know, obviously Christ's return. Um, so all of those things, you know, have to happen prior to his return, right? So, um, whereas the rapture is imminent, nothing has to happen before the rapture. Another contrast is, you know, the rapture, as I mentioned at the outset, <coughs> excuse me, at the outset of today's program, is that the rapture is a mystery. It's never talked about in the Old Testament. You see nothing of the church or the rapture in the Old Testament. But of course, the second coming is taught repeatedly in the Old Testament. It often talks about the return of Christ. Uh, now, the prophets in the Old Testament, 
many times talked about his first advent and his second advent in the same context, and they didn't understand that you know we were talking about two separate events because you know God hadn't revealed the church age yet. So of course they you know kind of merged them to they those two together. They thought he was coming uh, both you know to uh, pay the price for sins, the suffering uh, servant aspect there, uh, uh, like Isaiah fifty three but also to conquer and take over the world and rule in perfect peace and righteousness and justice. Isaiah 61 is a perfect example of this uh, merging of Christ's first advent at Bethlehem with his second advent to establish the kingdom. Uh, he says, uh, Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and opening the prison uh, to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he goes on to say, and the day of vengeance uh, of our God. Uh, so, you know, the first part of that happened when Christ came and shed his blood on the cross. But he has certainly not come to create, to, to establish the day of vengeance of our God. We see the same thing in Isaiah earlier in chapter 9 when he says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And then he goes on in the same sentence to say, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Well, that hasn't happened yet. It will happen when Christ the anointed comes to take the throne and rule the world. So the Old Testament prophets didn't distinguish the gap of time between the first and second advents, but, but they, what they also did not do is they never discussed the nature of that delay between his first and second advent, and they never explained the doctrine of the church. It was a mystery. So contrary to that, the, old, the second coming is clearly predicted in the Old Testament. Uh, a couple more. The uh, rapture, as we've talked about, and, and hopefully you can see from the passages that we read in 1 Thess 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, is intended to rescue, whereas the second coming is intended to judge. That's why he comes with a sword proceeding out of his mouth. Uh, the rapture, then, is a message of comfort. In fact, every time it's referenced, you always see you know, some kind of commentary uh, about comforting one another with these words. Uh, the second coming, by contrast, is a message of warning. As we talked about last Tuesday, the entire Olivet Discourse is basically Jesus saying, watch out, be ready, don't be deceived. He's co I'm coming, but you know, you got to be ready. Don't miss it the second time. You missed it the first time. Don't miss it. Watch for these signs. When you see these signs coming, you know, um, you know when you see these signs happening, you know my coming is near. So it's a message of warning and judgment. The rapture is a message of hope. Titus 2.13 calls it the blessed hope. You know, we, we are hopeful and, you know, thankful and grateful and, and know that God's going to rescue us someday and may it come today. And by the way, the doctrine of eminency, frequently you see in the New Testament references to an eager expectation uh, and, uh, you know, come quickly, Lord Jesus, those types of things. Well, if the rapture could only happen at a certain time in sequence, well, why would we pray that? In other words, if, we, if the rapture was the same thing as the second coming and was not going to happen until all of these other signs in the tribulation that we talked about, then why would Paul, for example, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, say, boy, I have an eager expectation. It would be disingenuous. What he really meant is, I know the, the rapture is not going to happen for at least seven years, um, but nevertheless, I'm you know, expecting this blessed hope. Uh, no, it, they, the clear 
implication and tenor of the biblical language is one of imminency, imminent expectation. Come quickly. We have an eager, from whom we eagerly wait the Savior, Paul says, you know, so, uh, you know, from heaven. So hopefully uh, this has at least given you some food for thought, you know, these contrasts between the rapture and the second coming. Uh, To summarize, the rapture is when Christ comes back to rescue the church so that we meet him in the air. After that, we will experience the Bema judgment uh, where we are rewarded for our faithfulness on earth. We'll experience the wedding of the Lamb in heaven, but seven, roughly seven years later, uh, we will come back with him uh, to, at the Battle of Armageddon to establish the kingdom on earth and rule and reign with him. The second coming, Christ comes all the way to the earth at the end of the tribulation, establishes the kingdom on earth, takes the throne promised to him by his father David, and... Uh, will rule forever and ever in perfect peace and righteousness and judgment. And if you don't understand the distinction in Scripture between the church and Israel, uh, then you will fail to recognize the wonderful nature of the rapture and the distinctions between the rapture and the second coming. coming. So thanks for letting me share that today. We'll uh, look forward to tomorrow night when we are continuing our series on what uh, is Calvinism and is it biblical. You can live stream that from Plum Creek Chapel in Sedalia, Colorado at 6 o'clock Mountain Time. Or if you're in the Denver metro area, come join us on uh, at 6 o'clock uh, in-house as we uh, continue that study. Uh, you can find out more at notbyworks.org where we link to our live stream page. We also link to Plum Creek Chapel's page so you can get directions. I uh, also want to encourage you to check out our online store because we have a ton of resources uh, that relate to this topic today. We have our chart book, for example, that goes through these distinctions between the rapture and the second coming. And you can get that digitally as PowerPoint and PDF. It comes as a one downloadable uh, package where you get both the PowerPoint and the PDF, or you can get it in print. Really nice color, eight and a half by 11 page flip chart with over a hundred of, of our most popular theological charts uh, and a huge section in there on end times charts. Uh, but check out our store. Don't forget about the Spirit of the Antichrist book. Uh, it is uh, just continuing to really open eyes and and uh, you know awaken people to the reality of the world in which we live. Uh, volume two is uh, hard at work uh, in the editing process. The rough draft is done. We still hope to have that out October, November, uh, and we will say more about that as we get closer. So thanks again for listening. God bless you, and we look forward to our next time.